Welcome to the Vintage Church Podcast. We hope to challenge and equip you to take your next step in your relationship with Jesus through these messages from our weekend worship gatherings. Everybody who is worshiping with us online, we are grateful for technology that allows us to worship together today. And it's good to, to be in the room just worshiping God. And uh, I don't think we're ever gonna get a good snow. And some of y'all are like, praise Jesus, bring on spring. And some of y'all are like, no, no, I want six feet. You're crazy. Ricky, you're crazy. So grab your Bible and move into 2 Samuel because yes, we are not moving on from when within just yet. Last Saturday, as we unnecessarily had church on Saturday night, I felt something stirring in my spirit that maybe, just maybe, God wasn't ready for us to move from this topic just yet. And there's a lot of times as I'm wrapping up a, a series that God will do that to me. And sometimes I know it's, it's just for me, like God's saying, Matt, the church can move on from this topic, but there's still some things that I'm wanting you to learn in this realm, so you need to stay here. And that's always difficult because I like to, the way that I approach preaching is I, I, I teach what God's teaching me. That my sermon, I don't, I don't separate my devotion, personal time with God in my teaching. Because I feel like if God is teaching me things, if there's stuff he's wanting me to learn, then, then there's things that we need to learn those things together. And so that also means that I have, I have in no way perfected anything that I'm teaching. And when I get really aggressive, I'm talking to me more than I'm talking to you. So I felt that stirring in my sphere. And then Saturday, Sunday night, went to bed, woke up about 2.30. And God, in my, in my mind, I just had the story of the life of David, especially what happens in 2 Samuel 11 with his epic failure with Bathsheba in just a minute. And I'm like, God, I have preached that as much as I've preached about any story maybe in my entire life. I started doing the math over the last couple of weeks, and I'm, I'm somewhere in the six to 700 realm of Sundays teaching the word of God as a pastor. And I've preached David's story so much, and I'm like, God, our church has heard that, I've heard that. There's really, I need something fresh and new. And God's like, no, I need you to, I need you to stay here. Because over the last several weeks, there's just been really, as we've looked at the life of Saul, there's been some things that God has been wrecking me with. Have, have you learned anything in this series? I hope so. Do, do you hate me sometimes in this series? If you so, it's okay. I hate me too sometimes when I'm preaching this. But, so we're gonna stay here for a little while, at least three more weeks. In the series that we were supposed to start today, we're gonna do after Easter. Because when I'm done with this, there's another topic that God, I feel like, is leading me to teach on that will very much accompany what we've been talking. After we finish this, we're gonna talk about one of the most valuable commodities you have, your influence because I'm tired of watching good Christian people throw throw theirs away on social media. And so we'll get, so that's gonna be fun too. (laughs) We'll get there in a little bit. But last week we kinda somewhat transitioned from Saul and started stepping in to the life of David. That Saul was this poster child for self-sabotage. It was clear from the very beginning, he just could not get out of his own way. And I feel like that's most of us, isn't it? If we're really honest, 
that the greatest threat to the life that we desire is not them, it's us. It's not, it's not the church you grew up in necessarily. It's not the coworker that's annoying you. It's not the family member who you watched make all those mistakes throughout your life. Your greatest enemy is the one looking back at you in the mirror, that we are at war with our own flesh. And we tried to learn from the life of Saul some really important lessons to overcome that, to start winning within. But as, to this point anyway, if Saul is the poster child for self-destruction, David seems to be the poster child for self-control. Up to this point, David was the one that remained loyal to, to this one who was constantly trying to kill him. I'm sorry, a man more than once throws a spear at my head, we're going down, all right, it's it. But somehow, and, and, and I talked about last week that, that David's most impressive thing was not the courage to kill Goliath. It was the control he had not to kill Saul. That the, this is a man who constantly demonstrated self-control. He stayed loyal to, to King Saul. He continued to go out and put his life on the line time in and time again, fighting for a kingdom and a king that did nothing but take him for granted. And even as you continue into the end of 1 Samuel where Saul is finally in this battle and he's surrounded, he can't win it, he eventually takes his own life. He falls on his own sword. And God had already anointed David as king, the one that would be the successor to Saul. But following Saul's death, there's tension among those two homes. David and his family and Saul and his family just live in tension and, 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 and at odds with each other for a while until David finally steps in and becomes king. And then as you move into 2 Samuel chapter 11, we lean into the story that is almost soap opera worthy. Y'all watch stories when you was growing up with your grandma? Some people laugh because y'all know what I'm talking about. Young and the restless. No, never mind. Second Samuel chapter 11. David has now been king for a little while. And it says this, verse one, Second Samuel chapter 11, verse one. It says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said to David, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to her to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. And what unfolds next is a snowball of sinful decisions that puts David in a position that nobody ever expected. You know the story, right? Turns out he has this one evening with Bathsheba and she ends up pregnant. 
And instead of doing the right thing and owning up to the decision that he's made, y'all know the story, right? He calls for Uriah, who was one of his most faithful soldiers. You might even say Uriah was loyal to David the way that David was loyal to Saul. He brings him in, says, go spend the evening with your wife. Have a little furlough time. But Uriah was so loyal to his nation and to his king and to the men he fought alongside, he couldn't do it. It's like, there's no way. I can't, I can't go enjoy being with my wife knowing that my men, my brothers in arms are out on the battlefield and could get struck down at any moment. So he, he doesn't even go up to be with her. This is the kind of man Uriah is. The kind of man that most of us thought David was. Come on. When that doesn't work, David does an even crazier thing. He gets him drunk. Says maybe we can get a little liquor in him. He'll let go of that loyalty. Let those inhibitions down. Because that's what happens with alcohol. Do not say amen. And even that doesn't do it. David constantly has the, has the opportunity to do the right thing. Long story short, because we're going to get into it more over the next couple weeks. He finally sends Uriah back out into the field, tells everybody, hey, when the fighting gets really fierce... Tell all the guys to pull back, leaving Uriah out front and exposed, and he will be struck down and killed, and nobody will ever know what I've done. This same David, who stands in the mouth of the cave and has Saul right there for the taking, all the men that are loyal to David say, dude, you got him. Now's your chance. He's been hunting you time after time. It's him or you, bro. Take him out. And David doesn't do it. He has enough control then. But then one night finds himself up on a roof and spirals out of control. How could this happen? Does anybody else wonder that? How does the David that we read about in 1 Samuel become this David that we read about in 2 Samuel? Now, there would be a lot of people, if this happened in our culture, everybody would come out of the work work and saying, I knew David wasn't good. I always knew it. <laughs> there were things. I saw it. Because that's what we do, right? Think about how, how many prominent faithful people in your lifetime has fallen and all the critics have come out of the woodwork. Well, we saw things. We knew it. Come on. Because see, in your worst moment, your, your critics will always want to define you by your worst moment. Your critics will always want to define you by your worst moment. That's what they do. We live in a culture of vultures when people fail. We love it. We just want to pick their bones when the body's not even cold. 
We even live in a culture in the church world that when somebody fails, we're more worried about gossip than restoration. We, we wanna put, well, we'll even say this. There's no way that that person ever loved Jesus if they did that. Oh, she was never really saved. I'm getting personal up in church today. But David, how, how could somebody so faithful do something so foolish? Move, move just a few chapters. Flip back to chapter seven. David has won victory after victory after victory, even brought the Ark of the Covenant back to its rightful home. He has this conversation with Nathan, the spiritual leader in his life, and then he has this prayer that we record. 2 Samuel chapter seven, verse 18 said, then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, who am I, sovereign Lord? What is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough, In your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. Verse 20, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant how great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. There is no God but you as we have heard with our own ears. Here is a man that's just maybe days or weeks before this event unfolds. He's sitting in the house of the Lord offering up a prayer of praise, acknowledging God for who he is. Sounds like a man who's centered. Sounds like a man who's been winning within. Go to Psalm 18. Psalm 18 is penned in response to that moment when Saul and David were encountering each other in this cave. And Psalm 8, I want you, you gotta lean into these words. Psalm 18, verse 20. says, the Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I'm not guilty of turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. I've been winning. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the, clean, the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Did you hear that? Here's David saying, man, I am winning. I'm not let David, I have not let Saul and all that he's done keep me from stepping outside of God's standards. I've been doing all the right things and God, you have been with me and because of this, you have shown favor in my life. The very man who's celebrating the control that he's experienced is now Just a few moments later, rolling down the hill and can't stop. How? How does this happen? How can a man who seemed to be so grounded, so in control, so connected to God, 
How does he end up making such a destructive series of decisions? And now, again, this whole series, I feel like our nature is to say, this message is for somebody else. I can't wait to share this on Facebook because she needs to hear this. Because we convince ourselves, we look at these things and think, that's not me and it never will be. I bet David thought the same thing. You know what I mean? I bet David's sitting in that cave, he's thinking about Saul, he's thinking, I will never be like that joker. I've seen what sin does. I will never be like him. I will never be like my dad. He was an alcoholic. I won't be like him. I will never follow that path. I'll have a better marriage than they did only to somewhere down the road fall into the same trap. How? Now, like most of these stories we have in Scripture, we'll never really know. But I think God is calling us to lean into these stories and unpack them. I don't know. Actually, yes, I do. You know why David did this? You know why David did everything he did? You want to know? Same reason why you do everything you want to do. You want to. No, Matt, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. You know you got to stop giving the devil so much credit. He only has the power of suggestion, no more, no less. He has never made a human do a single thing. He didn't make Adam and Eve eat the fruit, and he didn't make you do whatever you've done. You know why we sin? Because we want to. See, James, the brother of Jesus, unpacked this pattern for us. Go to James chapter one. Because he gives us the pattern of how we end up in sin. James chapter one, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But what happens is, verse 14, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire. By their own evil desire. Told you you were your own worst enemy. By your own evil desire and enticed, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. That ultimately, David saw something he wanted. When he was standing on that rooftop and he looked over at Bathsheba. But what else can we learn from this? How, how, does this, how does this happen? And again, look at me. I have no idea what's going on in David's heart and mind. But I do wonder if he got put in a place or allowed himself to fall into a place that we often do when we've been winning for a long time. Because see, sometimes we can get so good at being good that we just fall into a rut. Come on. We can get so good at being good that we just get stuck in a rut. And the next thing you know, we fall victim to what I call the curse of complacency. We fall victim to what I call the curse of complacency. 
And I would submit to you that that's part of the reason, or at least it could be, of why David ended up doing what he had done. Because complacency is a curse. Come on, somebody. And when you, when you read some things, I, maybe I'm reading into it, but go to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. If you just look at some of the things that are happening as we walk into this sinful spiral that David finds himself in. 2 Samuel 7, 1. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. I read, do you see that? After the king was settled in. You ever just got settled in? You just settled in to that routine. You just settled in to the way things are. You just settled in. It's funny, David went from the pasture to the palace. And when he was in the pasture, he had, he had to keep his, remember when he was, because he started out as a shepherd. Y'all don't remember that? As a shepherd, you couldn't let your guard down. You fall asleep for a minute, and something's coming to get your sheep. And so you live with this sense of urgency and on edge. And maybe that, that carried him into his life, that same sense of at any moment, something could go wrong. At any moment, something could change. And so as a shepherd, you, you kind of lived on your toes. But after a while, when you become king, and you're not in the pasture, now you're in the palace, and it's beautiful, you can go from your toes to your heels in a hurry and just settle in. Go into 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 13. It says, and David became famous after he had returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Now David was famous. Fame can do weird things to people. Start reading your own headlines, buying into your own hype. Everybody thinks you're great. People start looking up to you, putting you on a pedestal. And you know the only thing that can happen to people on a pedestal? A pedestal? Fall off. And I just wonder if part of what happened here, did, did David, did he win for so long? See, sometimes we can get caught up in celebrating past victories so much we forget we're still in a fight. We can get so caught up in celebrating our past victories that we forget you're still in a fight. You can have victory over that thing for so long, you can forget that lurking around a corner is that very same thing that used to terrorize you. And if it gets one more chance, it'll bring you down again. There's a reason why the enemy's like a lion. Y'all ever watch National Geographic? It ain't pretty. Waiting in the weeds, looking for the moment to strike and pounce, and they never even saw it coming. Then maybe David is falling victim to the curse of complacency. Proverbs 1.32 says, For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. That if, if, look at me, if you don't avoid the clutches of complacency, you will end up in the snares of sin. If you don't avoid the clutches of complacency, you will end up in the snares of sin. And that's exactly where David finds himself 
in this moment. I read a quote about complacency this past week, and, and the author was unknown, but it just hit me like a ton of bricks. It says, complacency is a blight that zaps energy, dulls attitudes, and causes a drain on the brain. The first symptom is satisfaction with things as they are, and the second is a rejection of things as they might be. Good enough becomes today's watchword and tomorrow's standard. Complacency makes people fear the unknown, mistrust the untried, and it bore the new. Like water, listen to this, like water, complacent people follow the easiest course downhill. They draw false strength from looking back. And when we start celebrating victories and forgetting we're still in a fight is when we end up defeated. That David had won and 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 won until he didn't. And we as followers of Jesus can never afford to hit cruise control. To settle in and think that, that those things that once got us never can again. To get to the point where we've got, we, we get to the point where we rely more on our record than we do his power. And we're warned about this in scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 Verse 11 says, these things happen to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Verse 12, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall because no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear it did not say he would not give you more than you can handle. He says you will not give you, be tempted more than you can bear. You know the difference, right? Come on, say amen. amen. He'll never give you more than he can handle, but you will oftentimes be in over your head. But when it comes to temptation, you can never say, well, the temptation was just too much. Because see, it says, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. <laughs> that every time the enemy offers a temptation, God gives you an off-ramp. The devil walks up in the room and God opens a window and says, go. Say, so be, be careful that you're thinking, I got this. See, we do all these things to get us there and then we think we don't need to do them to keep us there. And part of the reason why we're not winning is because we've misdefined the win. That we think the goal of the Christian life is just to be good. Good ain't the goal. Jesus is. That's a whole lot better and different than good. Jesus is the goal. See, especially in Southern Christianity, we think the goal is our best sin management. Sin management. I stopped doing all the things I used to do. And there are even some specific sins that we believe in the South. Don't drink, don't cuss. Okay, that's about it. <laughs> you know that's what we buy into, right? On the Bible. King James one, because it was good enough for Jesus, ought to be good enough for everybody. 
Like we have this thing, right, that we do and we, we convince and, and we settle and we get comfortable and we might can even do it for a prolonged amount of time thinking everything is okay and the enemy's just sitting back saying, oh, this is gonna be good, I'm gonna get them good this time. And he sets that trap and because we weren't paying attention, it gets us. And I would just submit to you, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. That we have to stand firm. 1 Corinthians 16, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. That as followers of Jesus, we can't just settle in to being good. Remember when they came to Jesus and they said, good teacher, I said, why are you call me good? Ain't nobody good but God. I'm a good person. God wants more. And he's given you enough power through his spirit to see more happen in your life. You have not arrived and neither have I. So for those in the room that you're falling victim to the curse of complacency, you stay in the clutches of complacency and you will end up in the snares of sin. And it's time to shake loose. Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. It says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to your goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. Then look at what it says in verse eight. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure. Not that we get to this spot and we think, okay, it's like some checklist. Got godliness, got patience, And then we just stop doing the hard work of continuing to passionately pursue Jesus with everything that we have. Because if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting they have been cleansed from their past sins. See, what if the reason why such a godly man, such a faithful person did something so foolish as David did is because he let himself get lulled into a place of complacency. He stopped doing the things that he needed to stay consistent in his relationship with God. And see, it's really easy to get into these disciplines and think that that's what it is. It becomes a gospel of do more instead of a gospel of be more. And what we think, we think we're in a rhythm, but really we're just robotic. You're sitting down with your Bible every single morning, but you're just reading it and checking the box. You're showing up at church, whether in the room or online, really consistently, but are you growing? Are you taking what God is? I told our staff in the last staff meeting, I'm worried about our team because sometimes we can get, get, fall guilty of preparing a meal for y'all every weekend that we never eat ourselves. And we lack the spiritual nourishment to keep us strong when that temptation comes. Temptation will be something that comes at you to the day you go to heaven. Well, I hadn't felt tempted in a while. He's just rocking you into a 
state of complacency so that you can finally get settled and he can see them. So it's time to wake up, church, to lean into the power of God. I'm grateful that you're winning, but I want us to keep winning. I want us to keep seeing victory over those things. I want us to just keep doing the things that unleash the power of God in our lives because you never know when you're gonna find yourself on a rooftop looking at something that you desire and the enemy telling you you can have it. So God, I pray right now for everybody under the sound of my voice, including myself, that God, we will take a hard look do some internal evaluation. They go, we're not, we're not doing anything sinful. We're going to church, we're reading our Bibles, we're paying our tithes, we're doing all the things that we're supposed to be doing. But somewhere along the way, we settle for consistency and not intimacy. And God, you desire so much more. And God, we have the power at our disposal to continue to walk in passion, pursuit of you, God. And so Lord, I pray that you would wake us up, that you would shake us from our sleep and our slumber today. God, for any of us that have found ourselves just coasting through on cruise control, God, jolt us out of that position and renew something in us that's stronger than ever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Vintage Church Podcast. We hope that what you experience today inspires you to live and love like Jesus. Stay connected with what's happening at Vintage and grow deeper in your faith by downloading the Vintage Church app. Through this app, you have access to sermon notes, upcoming events, devotionals, additional podcasts, and opportunities to connect in community. You can easily download our app by going to app.vintagechurch.net. We hope you join us again soon.